This is Tom Kalsik, the head of research and analytics at Hilltop Securities. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This is the 11th episode of our Politics and Finance Hilltop Securities podcast for 2021. During these discussions, we consider topics that intersect the worlds of politics and finance at the federal, the state, and the local levels in the United States. Often, we concentrate on issues related to public finance and the municipal bond market. Several times this year already, during this series, we zeroed in on ESG or environmental, social, and governance themes. ESG has become increasingly important to investors, issuers, regulators, and uh, we will consider some of those themes today for sure. We're also going to take a little little bit of a rear view mirror look at COVID while trying to assess uh, and figure out what some of the lessons have been that we've learned in 2020 and early 2021. But also the spread of the Delta variant continues to threaten, and we're going to get into our guests' view about what may be in store as a result of uh, the increase of uh, infection from the Delta variant. So today, we have the head of U.S. Public Finance from Fitch Ratings, Arlene Bonner, with us. Thanks for joining us today, Arlene. Thank you for having me, Tom. Arlene was named the head of U.S. Public Finance just as the COVID-19 crisis was starting to unfold at the beginning of 2020. So I'd have to imagine there was some trial by fire there at the beginning. Is that right, Arlene? That sounds about right, yes. (laughs) I'd have to imagine. So Arlene has been at Fitch for about the last 10 years in the public finance group before being named the head of U.S. Public Finance. She worked as a municipal credit consultant before that. And before that, she was a ratings analyst at Moody's and she worked at the city of Philadelphia's streets department. I also want to mention that Arlene is a Fells Masters of Government Administration grad. That's the MGA program at the University of Pennsylvania. Again, Arlene, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. So events that were directly impacting public finance at the beginning of last year in say February or March, they were coming at a furious pace. How is it that you and your leadership team were able to manage that process? That's a a great question um, because typically U.S. public finance is a very, very stable sector where we always try to read through economic cycles. but the pandemic was a massive credit event for our uh, for our issuers that really triggered a cycle that was like no other we had seen. Um, and at, at the time, you know, thinking back, we really didn't know the extent to which the federal government was going to intervene. Um, and I I can remember bringing my team together in those early days and and reinforcing to them that this is a situation where they won't be able to look to the past for precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no elder statesman analyst that they can turn to and ask, you know, hey, how did this pan out in the pandemic of 75? Uh, they were going to have to draw on their own experience and their own analytical judgment to determine, you know, which credits were at risk and how much were they at risk. Um, and luckily, we have a very experienced uh, and long-tenured team, and uh, they were up to the task. 
So does that mean uh, at the be even at the be very the be at the very beginning stages, you were with your leadership team trying to differentiate between, for example, maybe some of the events that we saw, you know, tenish years ago, leading up to the leading up and during the uh, global financial crisis. Tell me, can you repeat that question? I'm sorry. So uh, maybe put put a uh, put another way. Do you th do you think that when you were talking to your leadership team uh, at the beginning of last year, were there were were there some similarities or differences between what was experienced during the global financial crisis? I I think there were at the time we thought there were more differences than there were similarities. Um, we needed new ways to be able to look at our credits, assess our portfolio, and to see where the risk lie. Um, many of our traditional metrics that we look to um, weren't really helping us. They weren't telling us about what was going on at that time. So we needed fresher data points that were more relevant to what was going on that minute. Mm -hmm. um, we could see that the pandemic was affecting different credits in different ways. Um, we needed tools that would tell us who was the hardest hit and how will we know when they've hit the trough and are into recovery? Um, you know, how will we know when we've bottomed out? Um, so, we started looking at some new data points. We looked at a lot of the high frequency data, things like uh, subway ridership, um, Google mobility data, sales tax collections, real estate trends. Um, we looked at the monthly state tax revenue breakouts from uh, the Urban Institute. Um, but I think the tool that was perhaps the most enlightening for us was uh, a tool that we developed during the pandemic, our monthly labor trackers, where we do a, a deep dive into the employment statistics every month. Um, and those labor trackers really helped us to see who was the most and least affected by COVID. And then um, we graph that against who has had the slowest or the fastest recovery and employment. Um, so that really helps us to see where people are in their cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and it also helps us to identify which areas have lost labor market participants um, and, you know, helps us to think through what that means for the trajectory of their economy going forward. For the most part, there wasn't really a lot of negative ratings activity in 2020 and at the beginning of 2021. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I was wondering if you could describe how you and your sector heads approached uh, the landscape uh, specifically and maybe explain why uh, that there were, you know, probably a lower number of ratings activity uh, that occurred than I think what many were expecting. Yes, I, I think you're right. Um, there. In retrospect, I think it's even surprising to us that um, there wasn't more rating activity. Um, we do take a through the cycle approach to ratings, but this cycle was not like any cycle we had seen before. And it's also, you know, the stresses that our issuers were coming under were nothing like 
the stresses that we put them through according to our criteria. So um, there were definitely extraordinary circumstances to be evaluated. Um, we could see that the pandemic was affecting different credits in different ways and the damage was, was uneven. So we didn't wanna take a blanket approach um, because we didn't think that made sense. Um, so we, we tried to have a more surgical approach where we really dug in and identified which of our credits were most at risk and fo focus our rating actions there. And we did look at each and every one of the credits in our portfolio, um, but we tried to uh, look first at the ones where we thought, okay, uh, you know, for instance, uh, um, dedicated tax bonds or uh, mass transit credits. These are clearly at you know extraordinary risk in the near term, and so we tried to look at those those first. Um, so you know we looked at every one of them, and the vast majority we were able to af affirm those ratings because we thought that they would be able to make it through the storm and return to a credit profile consistent with their rating within the next three years or so. So we relied heavily on our, our scenario analysis um, to help us make that assessment. Um, a lot of the actions that we did take were outlook changes, and those tended to be credits where we thought they might not regain that level of resilience back within say three to five years. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we thought it was likely that the credit would not be able to get there um, within three to five years, those were the credits that we downgraded. Um, so, I mean, overall, the sector lived up to its reputation for overall credit stability. Um, although I will say some, at least some credit for that is owed to the federal government um, with the extraordinary amount of, uh, of stimulus money that was uh, poured into the sector. As you're talking about this process, I'm being reminded of uh, something that I've mentioned several times over the last month or so as I've talked more about monetary policy, where the, the Fed chair back in June uh, was talking about the fact that uh, we needed to be humble about the data. And it's not just what the data, you know, what the expected data is, but that we need to wait and see what the data actually is. And it sounds like that's more or less what it is that uh, was your goal from the beginning and what it is that you continued to do? I, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, it, as I mentioned before, the traditional sources of data weren't as helpful in that regard. So we really did have to seek out new sources of data and new ways of, of analyzing uh, up to the minute data, which, you know, high frequency data has its own issues and um, can be somewhat problematic. So we had to really um, work at how to use that tool uh, without falling prey to some of the, the drawbacks. And I remember, uh, I remember talking to you and some of your sector heads and many of the analysts, uh, you know, at the beginning of uh, when many of the many of these events were kind of unfolding at the beginning of last year, and you were all uh, uh, signed on to the, this approach, uh, and I'd have to imagine that uh, there might have been some criticism that you were receiving at different times during the year. Uh, but I, honestly, I think that you know the way that 
you explained what it is that your approach was at the beginning. Um, I mean, you did an excellent job of describing it to me, and I'm guessing that you did a, a similar job describing it to others. And I know that you described this in other uh, published pieces, but I, you know, I think that uh, that was very important. It was very important to uh, to describe that approach so folks weren't caught off guard, frankly, one way or the other. So um, I really appreciated that. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad it was clear because it, it, it can be difficult to um, to communicate in those circumstances. And, and I think what was really helpful was the approach that Fitch took company-wide um, publishing our baseline and downside coronavirus scenarios so that across the company, everyone was speaking the same language about, um, you know, what we meant about things and at what point we would be thinking about outlook changes versus downgrades and, uh, you know, what the recovery timeline was. So um, that that helped our analytical team as well. I'm glad that you mentioned those because there were several times during the conversations that I had with not just the sector heads, but especially the analysts themselves. They uh, referred to the, th that analysis several times, and I agree. It absolutely made it so there was a, uh, I don't know if I'd calling it a base case is the best way to describe it, but that's it seemed as though there was a consistent base case that everyone uh, uh, signed on to. Mm -hmm. So now the Delta variant is threatening. Can you share with us what it is that we might expect uh, from Fitch in the near term related to the Delta variant and, and maybe even potentially other variants? Sure. Um, I think uh, as much as we all wanted to believe that the pandemic was ending, Delta has shown us that it's not over yet. Um, there are still pockets of risk out there that we have to be vigilant about. Um, states and local governments will be at some risk of uh, stalling or reversing the economic recoveries that we've been seeing. Um, but I don't, I don't know that that's where the most risk is because at, at, at this point, most of those credits, I think, are well positioned to withstand, uh, you know, imposition of temporary mitigation measures if it should come to that. Um, healthcare is a sector where I think we could see some material risk playing out. Um, you know, first of all, just thinking back to the, the beginning of the pandemic, the hospital sector was really coming off a year of, of weak margins going into the pandemic. So they were not as well positioned going into the crisis. Um, and, you know, as cases surge again, elective pr uh, procedure volume, which is the highest margin business for hospitals, will naturally be limited. And, and then expense pressures are, are going to stay high. Um, that's going to continue to be an issue for our not-for-profit hospitals. Um, they already have uh, high levels of debt, and that's going to continue to be a factor for them. Um, many hospitals drew on lines of credit uh, or, or issued taxable debt to beef up their liquidity at, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and those borrowings are you know, now on their balance sheet, and we think that a significant amount of that debt is gonna remain on their balance sheet. Um, 
And one of the concerns that we heard a lot about from our issuers in 2020, and now we're starting to hear more about it now as Delta uh, variant is surging, has been the amount of staff resignations. Um, a lot of staff are, are uh, leaving due to burnout or what's called uh, moral injury, which is the extraordinary psychological stress on frontline healthcare workers that's brought on by working in a pandemic. Um, and, you know, then you also have uh, the need for staff to be offline if they've been uh, exposed, if they get sick, if they get a, you know, many of them are vaccinated, but as we've seen, there are breakthrough cases happening. Um, all of this has led to higher costs, higher staffing costs um, for hospitals hard hit by the virus. Um, they've had to pay a premium for staffing. They've had to hire uh, temporary workers at, at very high cost. Um, so hospitals that are in hot spot zones um, with respect to Delta, they are not out of the woods yet. And um, I think we're gonna, you know, instead of maybe not broad uh, pressure on, on the entire sector, but pockets where these uh, Delta cases are, are coming up are gonna continue to put pressure on the hospitals in those areas. Yeah, just uh, before we, uh, over the last week or so, before we started recording, there have been in some states, uh, hospital systems where I've seen, whether it be, as you mentioned, limiting or eliminating uh, other uh, kind of non-COVID uh, procedures that's already been uh, mm -hmm. I guess I'm going to say happening, but rehappening because that's something that was happening in the spring and the being the summer of last year. Right. So let's switch gears and discuss what it is that uh, Fitch is, or in some cases, maybe not doing where ESG uh, themes are concerned. I know that Fitch rolled out uh, the relevance scores back in the summer of uh, 2019. I'm right now looking at a uh, May 2021 report. Uh, titled Where ESG Matters for U.S. Public Finance that gives us some more details. I wonder if you could describe for the folks who are listening how it is that Fitch incorporates uh, ESG generally, but then also explain what we need to know about your uh, relevant scores and how they are incorporated or how they influence uh, the public finance, the U.S. public finance ratings. Sure. Um, so, as you mentioned, in May of 2019, um, we began uh, adding uh, environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, relevance disclosure to our uh, U.S. public finance ratings. Uh, now, ESG risks are often very different from credit risks, and they only impact the credit risk profile a small percentage of the time. Um, as you know, though, today's markets are, are looking for clarity on exactly when and how that occurs. So, uh, you know what? I, I'm going to have to tell people to be quiet in the other room. I will be right back. It's okay. Amy, could you, I didn't, I wasn't hearing anything. Were you hearing anything? No, but okay. um, that's maybe fine. She, I just, yeah, maybe she was hearing anything. She, okay. It might be distracting more than anything. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, it was super distracting to me. <laughs> the dog was yeah, barking. we couldn't hear anything. I, yeah. I, um, 
cleaning lady just came and the dog was barking and my daughter okay. was talking to her and whatever. So <laughs> I'm sorry. That's the times that we live in. Yeah. You were, you were talking about the uh, relevant scores. Do you want me to start from the beginning? Yeah, that would probably, would that be easier, Amy? I would think that'd be, yeah, I want you to Yeah, you can go ahead and just start over and have a fresh thought about it. So no worries. Sure. Okay. So yes, um, as you mentioned, Tom, in May of 2019, um, Fitch began adding environmental, social, and governance disclosure to our US public finance ratings. Um, we do that because uh, ESG risks are often very different from credit risks, and they only impact credit risks, uh, credit risk profiles, uh, a small percentage of the time. Um, but today, uh, today's investors are, are looking for clarity on exactly when and how that occurs. So we publish ESG scores with our ratings um, that show where and how much our existing ratings already include factors that have an ESG angle to them. So those ESG relevance scores encompass 15 separate ESG factors, five each for environmental, social, and governance, and each one of those is individually scored from one to five. Um, and those 15 ESG factors are informed by work that's been done by the Sustainability Accounting Standards, Standards Board or SASB, uh, the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing or UNPRI, and then they incorporate uh, World Bank governance indicators as well. Um, so that scaling of one to five, one is when the risk is irrelevant to the sector two would be for where it's largely irrelevant to that issuer three is for when the esg factor is relevant to an issuer but it's being managed such that it doesn't have any credit impact right now and that's the bulk of the scores that we have uh, four is for when a risk with esg roots is starting to affect a rating discussion and five is for those cases where a rating action is specifically driven by an ESG factor. So, um, you know, just keep in mind, these are observations on existing ratings. They are not scores of ESG performance. Um, they don't change the way that we assign our credit ratings or what level of credit rating we assign but they do provide transparency to investors on where ESG risks are also relevant to the credit profile. So you mentioned that they, they only really impact the ratings a small amount of time. I was wondering if you could give us an idea of, of, of the actual numbers and uh, how often it is that uh, they do impact uh, the ratings? So overall for the entirety of U.S. public finance, it's about 7% um, of ratings. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's a pretty small number. Um, that varies by sector. So we have some sectors 
where um, it's much, much higher and some sectors where it's much, much lower. Um, one where I think it's pretty extraordinarily higher is our community development and social lending sector, mm-hmm. which is to be uh, called housing. Um, and in that sector, we have a lot of uh, positive ESG scores. So many of our ESG relevant scores relate to uh, negative credit factors. In community development social lending, we have um, a, a fair amount of positive ESG scores where these ESG factors are factors that are putting positive pressure on ratings. So um, I think uh, about 65% of the ratings in that sector hmm. have uh, elevated ESG relevance scores. The last thing that I'm going to ask about, Arlene, is whether or not uh, there are kind of high profile, if there's been some high profile ratings activity recently. And in the, in what I'm thinking about when I ask that question is, if there have been incidents like uh, the, you know, the the February of 2021 Texas freeze that I uh, experienced, for example, because I live down in, in outside of Dallas now, if there are events like that or other things like like that uh, that mm-hmm. have um, been a little more high profile that you could talk about. Yeah, I I think that one is probably the one that really springs to mind for me um, because it it affected so many of, of our issuers, um, our public power issuers in Texas. So um, as you know, uh, that there were a lot of um, ratings in uh, public power ratings in Texas that were placed on negative watch. Um, and also, um, many of those watches ended up being resolved. There are still a couple of watches still outstanding, but the vast majority of them were resolved. Um, many of them resulted in downgrades. Um, they all still are on, uh, either negative watch or negative outlook with the exception of one. Um, which is that stable outlook. Um, but when we took those actions, we um, when we placed them on rating watch negative, we raised the uh, ESG relevance score for exposure to environmental impacts, mm-hmm. which is one of the five sub-factors under environmental. Mm-hmm. Those were raised to four when the rating watch went on. And then for those credits, that experienced rating downgrades, though that particular ESG relevance score was then elevated to five, indicating that this Impact. issue directly affected the downgrade action. Mm-hmm. That's uh, and and that I can I'm I'm looking at your scoring definitions, and that's uh, that five is is. To being as you're as you're noting described as being highly relevant to that credit so that makes sense and i remember from the beginning of when this was going on in february uh quoting and uh talking to folks about uh, the actions that um that fitch was taking so th- uh, thanks very much for that and i also want to thank you for joining us today arlene we're very pleased that you could make time for us 
Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been my pleasure. And I'd also like to thank those who tuned in and downloaded our recording today. Thanks very much for listening. And for those interested, you can see the recent Hilltop Securities Economic and Municipal Commentary and listen to our podcasts by going to hilltopsecurities.com backslash commentary. And you can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again, everyone. We look forward to bringing you more color in the future related to topics that intersect both the worlds of politics, finance, and public finance. This has been Tom Kozik from Hilltop Securities. Thanks for listening to Hilltop Talks, a Hilltop Securities podcast where we navigate the impact of politics and finance on the financial markets. For those interested, you can view our Hilltop Securities economic and municipal commentary by visiting hilltopsecurities.com backslash municipal dash commentary and hilltopsecurities.com backslash economic dash commentary. You can also follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again, everyone, for subscribing, tuning in, and participating. We look forward to bringing you more color in the future on topics that intersect both the world of politics and finance. This has been Tom Koslick at Hilltop Securities. This communication is intended for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice, nor is it an offer or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any investment or other specific product or service. Financial transactions may be dependent upon many factors such as, but not limited to, interest rates, tax rates, supply, and change in laws, rules and regulations, as well as changes in credit quality and rating agency considerations. The effect of such changes in such assumptions may be material and could affect the projected results. Any outcome or result Hilltop Securities or any of its employees may have achieved on behalf of our clients in previous matters does not necessarily indicate similar results can be obtained in the future for current or potential clients. Hilltop Securities makes no claim the use of this communication will assure a successful outcome. For additional information, comments, or questions, please contact Hilltop Securities, Inc. Hilltop Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Hilltop Holdings, New York Stock Exchange, ticker symbol HTH. Hilltop Securities is located at 717 North Harwood Street, Dallas, Texas, 75201. Phone number 833-4-HILLTOP, H-I-L-L-T-O-P, and is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Thank you.